I suddenly realised, I remember saying, Michael is not coming home. I couldn't go to the door dead, but I knew Michael wasn't coming home. In the early hours of February the 14th, 1981, 48 young people died when fire engulfed the Stardust nightclub in Artane, Dublin. He said, uh, place is on fire, we're not going to get everybody out. Tell the officer to send absolutely everything that you have. Nobody saw it coming. If they did, it was already too late. Just people were screaming outside. You could hear them screaming. 846 people came through the doors that night. 44 would never come out. Four more died in hospital. It was one of Ireland's most catastrophic tragedies. And then everything went black. Then everybody started squealing and roaring and, and you could see the flames, do you know what I mean? And everybody then, it was just like wild animals. Getting out was a lottery. There was a state play and bars on the window, so we, we couldn't get out. Only fate decided who lived and who died. For some survivors, they never really got out. And for the families left behind, their souls were taken with their kids inside that building. Those that got out of the building got out of hell, but we've lived in hell. They were left at the mercy of an uncaring state. I want to know why the state interfered. I want questions answered. This is the story of the Stardust tragedy. Brought to you by the Irish Sun. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In May 2016, three months after the Regency attack, Jonathan Dowdall packed his bags and headed for Dublin Airport. He planned to board a plane to Dubai where he'd meet his sister and stay with her. Dowdall had work lined up there and had no intentions of returning home. He held hands with his wife, Patricia, as they approached the entrance to security. He wasn't quite sure when he'd see her next. He gave his three children a big hug and headed on his way. Some fellow passengers looked on at the family. It was clear they were about to be divided. A typical, yet emotional sight for anyone to witness in departures. Standing 20 feet away, Michael Mulligan, a brown-haired man in his 50s, also bore witness to the couple's long goodbye. He was watching intently, and had been doing so for quite some time. You see, Michael wasn't in the airport to go away on holidays. He was there to follow Jonathan Dowdall. Scoping out his movements. His every step. 
Mulligan was an inspector at Ballymongarda station and had been given orders to keep a close tab on the former councillor. In fact, Dowdall had been under surveillance for weeks at this point. The cops knew he was connected with Flatcap and it was likely he was involved in the Regency. Not just that, they had the evidence to back it up. In February, just two weeks after the Regency, the Gardaí had sought permission to apply for a tracker and a recording device to attach to his car. It was Dowdall's passenger that made the journey an interesting one. The Irish sons, Michael Doyle, explains. Effectively, Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdall travelled north to meet um, a number of dissident Republicans. Jonathan Dowdall said that they were hoping, or certainly Jerry Hutch was hoping, that they would mediate in the feud with the Kinnins. The recordings were a potentially massive piece of evidence for the Gardaí. But they were still a long way off getting the DPP to sign off on a charge. But there was nothing to stop them questioning the councillor. Back at the airport, Dowdall proceeded to the security area. He was keen on moving through as quickly and as quietly as possible. He emptied his pockets and lifted his hand luggage onto the conveyor belt. It slowly disappeared into the distance. He was waved through the body scanner without any fuss and picked up a small case and basket of belongings. As he lifted up his jacket, he felt a hand on his shoulder. It was Inspector Mulligan. Jonathan Dowdall. Yeah. You are arrested on suspicion of the murder of David Byrne. You're making a big mistake. He interjected. I had nothing to do with that whatsoever. The Garda confiscated his phone and he was taken into custody and brought to Clontarf Garda Station. There, members of the Garda National Bureau of Criminal Investigation began to interview him. It was the first of ten that would take place during his detention. Officers wanted to know whether Jared Hutch had discussed anything to do with the Regency shooting with him. Why would he? I'm not a criminal. His lies continued. He never said anything to me about being involved in the Regency. And if he was involved in it, I don't think the man is that stupid to tell me. A detective shot back. You're telling us lies, Mr. Dowdall. Bare-faced lies. It was at this point that things took a turn for the worse for the former Sinn Féin councillor. We know about you and Jerry's trip up north on March the 7th. We have recordings of your conversations. There's no point telling us lies. During those conversations, they spoke about many subjects. You know, they spoke about the origins of the feud. They spoke about the, how the Kinahans got so big and powerful so quickly. They spoke about the three yokes that were used. What were the three yokes? They were the AK-47s used in the shooting of David Byrne. The cops had gathered 12 hours of conversations with Dowdall and they clearly linked him and the monk to knowledge of the Regency. Inspector Mulligan continued with the bad news. We also know you and your father booked a room for Kevin Murray. Jonathan, things are not looking good for you. The Gardaí applied and were given a number of extensions to Dowdall's detention period. A couple of days in, the former councillor was visited by his two young daughters. 
While in the room, he looked at Mulligan. Is there any way of... I'm not having this conversation with you, the inspector replied. The next day, Dowdall was visited by his wife Patricia and her brother. The visit was again supervised by Inspector Mulligan. He'd spent a lot of time in the presence of Dowdall and his family since first arresting him. Dowdall was clearly panicked. He knew he was goosed. The tracker and recorder placed him in the car with the monk. Shortly after his wife and brother-in-law left, he stood from his chair and walked towards Mulligan. Can we speak to you in private? The officer obliged. What about witness protection? Could me and my family enter into that? Please, we do in. Mr Dowdall, that's a matter between your solicitor and the DPP. And frankly, far above my pay grade. I advise you to get legal advice. Dowdall continued his pleas out of desperation, but they were falling on deaf ears. Mr Mulligan was right. This was a matter for the DPP. And it was one that wouldn't be resolved any time soon. But the seed had been planted. And eventually those conversations would take place. The ramifications would be truly massive. And they would see Dowdall become a household name across the country in years to come. They were at their lowest ebb and Kinahan would come in and he would change their life. The strong indications are that Hazen and another company called Dukashu Consultancies were simply front companies for narco-trafficking. The Kinahans is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Damien Lane. If you liked what you've heard so far, please leave us a review on your podcast app. It only takes a second. Eddie Hutch's murder in February 2016 was a wake-up call to all the extended Hutch family. The Kinahans were ruthless in their hunt for vengeance. Not just that, they'd cashed a burn and access to firearms. No one was safe, and each member of the monk's family began to question whether they might be next. It was exhausting for each and every one of them. Neil Ring remained close with some members of the Hutch family during the feud. None more so than Garrett, Jerry's nephew. Garrett was a lovely guy and he came up to my office in May and um, he just sat down and said, I want to, I want, and he was, no, he was quite calm about it. And as I said at the time, he had a foreboding. He said, I think they're going to get me, but I don't want them to do it in front of me, kid. Yeah, the little fella at the time was nine, I think, nine or ten, who was living with him in Avondale House. Avondale House is a large flat complex just over Newcommon Bridge, heading towards Connolly Station. Garrett had been living there for a number of years with his young family. And he said the security in the place is absolutely terrible. There's CCTV for other parts. I'm totally exposed. People could get in the window, people could get in the front, whatever. Neil could sense the panic from the young man. It was horrible to witness. He made a phone call to a contact in the council to explain the situation. And he said, look, we understand, because everyone knew what was going on. There was another flat available in the same complex. He said, if I can get that, that'd be ideal, because they couldn't get me there. And he kept going on about them getting him. Garrett's anxieties weren't without merit. Many of his family had received threat-to-life warnings from the Gardaí. He received his own in April of that year. The previous nine months had been so surreal as friends and family were gunned down one by one. And again, he, it was just, it was all about his kid. Neil got good news back from his contact in the council. Look, that flat is vacant. We'll sort him out. Get him down to me tomorrow, but he'll have to have a letter, you know, outlining why, etc. And I said, I'll do the letter for him. What time will he go down? He said, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, Shaw McDermott Street. The next morning, on the 24th of May, Gareth got up and helped his son Preston get ready for school. 
it wasn't safe for him to do the school run himself. But he gave him a hug before heading out the door. It was a beautiful sunny morning in Avondale House. As cars zipped by the flats down Northumberland Street on their way to the city. It was half past nine. And although the walk to the council office was just five minutes, Garrett felt safer taking the car. That way, he could park right outside the front door. He grabbed his keys and jogged downstairs to the car park. With the weather outside, the brief strut was enough to break a sweat. So he took off his jacket and popped it into the back of the car. Hutch stepped forward to open the driver's door. Behind him, out of view, two men began sprinting towards the car. What began as a faint patter of footsteps grew louder. Hutch turned, but before he could see who was coming, bang! He was shot three times in the back of the head. I think it's another chilling example of the reality of, of organised crime and the reality of the threat that the Kennehan cartel group posed to the people of the North Inner City at that time. Soon after, leaked CCTV footage of the murder made its way onto the internet. And you can clearly see them lifting their hands up and firing the shots. You can see the smoke coming from the guns as well and, and murdering him in cold blood. It, it is very chilling. Within minutes, Neil got a phone call. I heard he was shot. He was actually going to that meeting. That's that, that was the real scary part. But the fact that I had set him up with a meeting, which ended up he was shot as he was coming out of the flat complex to go to. And that was that was, was very upsetting. Tony Gallagher was an inspector in the Mountjoy Division. He recalls the brazen nature of the assault. A weekday morning with no shortage of people around. And it was just, again, an example of the risk that the hitmen were prepared to take, notwithstanding that we had very intensified patrols in the place. But that was the intent. That was their intent to take out as many Hutch people as they could at that time. And that was the, that was the sad part about it. I mean, here was a guy just, you know, knowing he was in under threat but at the same time was his only concern wasn't his own life it was his kid making sure his kid didn't see him being shot in front of him Gareth Hutch became the feud's ninth victim and the third Hutch family member to be killed in nine months he and Eddie were soft targets for the Kinahans in some ways it was a fear tactic you think that the Kinahans thought that they were going to turn the north inner city against uh, the Hutches it actually had the opposite effect, where people were genuinely um, expressing remorse. Now four boys, and you know, you'd do anything for them, and that's all he was worried about, doing something, making sure he was protected. And like talking to his family, it's the sort of person he was. When you assess the success or otherwise of criminal organisation, you've got to really look at it from every perspective. So... The Kinnan's decision to move to Dubai uh, has been, to some degree, a game of two halves. John Mooney's security correspondent with the Sunday Times. It's worked out for them in terms of it allowed them to network. They have forged alliances with major criminal organisations, very powerful criminal organisations whose reach stretches around the globe. In later years, the Kinahan's contacts that were forged in Dubai would spell real trouble for the gang. But in 2016, and moving into 2017, it was a very lucrative time for the cartel. They were back to their old tricks and continued moving drug shipments around Europe. Not only that, they were quick to establish a new system of laundering their narco profits. Fergus Scheel is managing editor for the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. 
The financial crime expert has done masses of work in tracking the gang's illicit finances through a series of leaked documents. I started to take an interest in the Kinans about two years ago because I discovered them in some of our documents. That is, ICJ has about uh, 80 or 90 million documents that we hold. And those documents um, tell countless stories of illicit financial transactions and illicit money flows, trillions and trillions of dollars of money moving around the world from hidden offshore accounts. And because I grew up in Dublin, I knew of the Kinahans. And um, when the Hutch Kinahan dispute uh, started to uh, leave large numbers of people uh, in morgues in Dublin, uh, I became more interested in them. And then, intriguingly, I stumbled across some documents amongst the millions that we have that pointed to their holdings. The Kinahans wasted no time in establishing a foothold in the Middle East. My colleague Maggie, Michael and I, what we discovered was the Kinahans established a number of companies in Dubai and had a number of properties in Dubai. And those companies are really intriguing because they set up an agricultural company, they set up an aviation company, they have a sports company. And, you know, there's no, there's no sense to these companies. Heism Trading, their global agricultural business, is still online. On LinkedIn, their director of development describes them as specialising in commodity trading, especially food commodities in the Middle East. His name is Christopher Vincent. Ken Henson never distributed corn around the world or soybeans. And the strong um, indications are that Hazem and another company called Dukashu Consultancies were simply front companies. The Kinahans used their agribusinesses to transport cocaine internationally. It was a move straight out of the Italian Mafia's playbook. Well, we actually visited both offices and they still seem to be operating, which is very curious because this is, you know, months after at least one of the companies, Dukashu, was declared sanctioned by the American government. So there is something going on there, but what it is, we don't know. Of the two, the one that seemed to be busiest was Hazen. Uh, it had more staff and seemed to be doing something, but it's unclear to us what they were doing. They also had connections with aviation. They had Yet another interest, which was in a Malawian aviation company, which did fly planes. For Irish and European investigators, the Kinahan's move to the UAE was a frustrating but predictable one. You're dealing with criminals, and they're trying to be a step ahead of you. So when the pressure comes on in Ireland, they move. When it comes on in Holland, they move. And when it comes on in Spain, they move. And the pressure was on, the pressure was on, at, at an international level. When it gets to that stage, law enforcement internationally knows about you. You can't stay in Europe when all the European law enforcement agencies know about you. It's a matter of time, so you've got to keep moving. We would have known immediately when people were travelling to the UAE. Again, our outreach, as I say, in law enforcement is global, so when people moved when they were about to move, we were, we were fully aware of that. The Gardaí had to bide their time and continue to work with international colleagues to take down the gang. But they were still years away from anything concrete. Back in Dubai, the Kinahans were busy forging connections to help their businesses grow. The UAE is a complicated region to operate from. Getting set up can initially be difficult. Once you've done that, it's quite easy for gangsters to operate freely. The UAE did have a law which meant that anyone to set, wanting to set up a company in the UAE had to do so uh, in cooperation with a local uh, you know, UAE person. And so you see that the Kinans um, set up one of their companies in conjunction with, bizarrely, a, a police academy graduate from Dubai, um, you also see that the Kinans had um, at one point a connection with the, literally the king of Bahrain. And you see that they have other connections to you know, uh, high-ranking figures in the UAE. 
which raises the question of whether those connections have protected them from arrest. All of the cartel's top brass seem to have a litany of businesses. Some legitimate, others not, both in Dubai and closer to home. John Francis Morrissey had a restaurant in Kinsale. You know, another one of their associates, Palmer Cabinet, Thomas Palmer Cabinet, had a had a, uh, a a motor business in Birmingham. So they're involved in lots and lots of stuff. They're involved in property. They're involved nominally in aviation, agriculture, um, motor businesses, um, and then they have others. Uh, very strong connections to curious things like uh, gluten-free vodka and fake tanning. While vodka and fake tan were some of the more interesting rackets the cartel owned, cocaine has always been their main currency. And this didn't change in Dubai. So cocaine is the fuel that keeps organised crime going. It's a greater consumer base than heroin. It is far greater profits than hash and there is a mountain of it in South America with well-organised cartels willing to get it, get it across. Post-Celtic Tiger there are record numbers of people using cocaine in Ireland and indeed globally. It is estimated that the cocaine trade for Europe is 9 billion euro. And that was a figure from two years ago. I'd put it at 13, 1, 3 billion euro. That's for cocaine alone. So the Kinnahans were part of a super cartel that was operating out of Dubai and Raffaele Imperiale of the Indrangheta was a central component to this. But he was someone, you've got to understand that these are entrepreneurial, organised crime figures. They'll deal with anyone that will make them wealthy, that they can more importantly trust and that they can use for influence. It's a world full of machoism and everything got to do with kind of, I suppose, toxic masculinity. Imperiale was extremely close to the Kinahans. He was a guest of honour at Daniel's wedding to Dubliner Quiva Robinson. The lavish affair took place in the Burj Al Khalifa and its guest list was a who's who of the criminal underworld. Jude Weber is Ireland correspondent for the Financial Times. You know, that wedding at this super lavish hotel and so... It's so kind of obvious. They've got all of these big players and they're having this massively lavish hotel. They just must have felt completely untouchable. So what you see with the Kinahans is that they kind of teamed up with these other European cartels or drug lords to form this super cartel. And it it seemed to be a very pragmatic arrangement where, you know, I can bring this, you can bring that. We've got this market, I've got that market, put it all together, we'll rule the world kind of thing. Raffaele Imperiale was close to the Kinnahans. He'd attended Daniel Kinnahan's wedding. They had plans, along with a number of others, to create a kind of super mafia that was would operate from Dubai because it was safe for them to operate there. They corrupted local officials, but they'd also become embedded in the elites of the Middle East and they were well connected in that regard including having connections with people involved at state level amongst powerful families out there. So this guy was just another component to this. He's someone that the Kinnans could use but he could also use the Kinnans and it's kind of almost like a, a, a parasitic relationship but between all sides they kind of feed off one another. But more Importantly, I suppose, really, when you think about it, this particular individual had a proven track record in crime. And from the Kinnan's point of view, he would have been seen as someone that they could trust, that could do business with, and would never betray them. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was a warm summer in Mallorca when council worker Trevor O'Neill took a family trip of the school holidays. He was celebrating his 42nd birthday. It was a regular destination for the family of five, a place he and his partner of 20 years, Suzanne Power, had been visiting from a young age. It was a safe and a fun place for the family. Until August of 2016, when everything they knew would change forever. Trevor enjoyed his time in the sun. He loved walking around the Costa de la Calma resort. It was a warm afternoon on August 17th, and Trevor was out on his usual walk, completely ignorant to the fact that also on this walk was a member of the Hutch family. Jonathan Hutch, to be specific one of the monk's many nephews. Eventually crossing paths, the two strangers struck up conversation while enjoying a poolside afternoon. Kids played in the distance as sounds of splashing water and laughter spread through the air. But like when you are away, you know, you get to see different people from home. Well, how are you? And, you know, you're from Dublin that type of thing and, and that's what happened where um, Trevor and, and the family had met uh, Jonathan Hutch uh, Gareth Hutch's brother and we're, we're set, had simply been speaking to him at, at uh, different times uh, in the same complex they were staying in As the pair laughed and joked little did they know that another man had made his way onto the island a contract killer by the name of Glenn Clark. His name may sound familiar to you. It's not the first time he's been mentioned in this series. And it won't be the last. Clark was responsible for the death of innocent man Martin O'Rourke. It was the second time he'd shot the wrong person. Later that evening, the O'Neills ran into Jonathan Hutch once more. They bumped into each other on a busy road near the complex where they were staying. The family mingled innocently with the Hutches and slowly made their way back to the hotel. Meanwhile, Clark had tracked down his target and he stalked the group closely. Before making his move, he'd crept up towards the family. He reached his arm over the shoulder of Trevor's eldest daughter, right in the direction of Jonathan Hutch. He pulled the trigger 
firing four shots recklessly. The bullet somehow missed Hutch entirely, and one lodged itself into the lower back of Trevor O'Neill. He collapsed on the floor in agony outside the small supermarket the two families were in front of. Hitman Clark disappeared into the distance. Pandemonium ensued. Kids screamed as bystanders tried to help. Trevor's eyes began to turn yellow and then white. He was fading rapidly. The ambulance took 25 minutes to arrive at the scene. As Suzanne and her family cried out for help, by the time paramedics arrived, it was too late. A gunman came up and opened fire and instead of killing Hutch, they, they, they shot Trevor, shot him once in the back and he, he died, shot him uh, in front of his kids. It was the third botched hit that Glenn Clark had been responsible for. It was an appalling moment in this already horrible period for Irish crime. Three young children forced to witness the death of their dad a beloved and innocent father. I remember being in the office that night and getting a call from a member of Trevor O'Neill's family saying, please, 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 they were very distressed, please let it be known that Trevor was not involved in organised crime, has nothing to do with this feud. Suzanne has never been able to heal from the murder. Stephen Breen recalls his conversation with the grieving mother of three. I interviewed Trevor's partner, Suzanne, on the first anniversary of his killing. One of the first things she said to me was, I don't need to tell the kids what happened to their father, because they were there. The fact Glenn Clark had been allowed to shoot three innocent people highlighted just how little regard the Kinahans had for human life. Again, you look at the, the whole strategy employed by the Kinahan organisation, They'd already killed Eddie Hutch. They'd already tried to kill Jerry Hutch. They'd killed Gary Hutch. And they'd killed Gareth Hutch. On a desperately cold night in early December, Glenn Clark sat quietly in a stolen car. It had been fitted with false reg plates and was parked up in Riverdale, a quiet housing estate in Leakslip, County Dublin. It had been three and a half months since he murdered Trevor O'Neill, his third botched killing of an innocent man. Having shot Martin O'Rourke in April and Anthony Johnson back in 2013, a truly horrendous CV for a contract killer. He slowly put on a pair of gloves and popped the glove box. Reaching inside, he pulled out a black revolver. Unbelievably, he was preparing for another job. He was dressed in overalls, and so that the suspicion was that um, he was perhaps planning uh, another murder at the behest of the Kinahan organisation. Clark held the gun in his hands and began to clean it down in preparation for that night's attack. A large bang echoed around the dark housing estate. Clark's gun dropped to the footwell of the car, and the young assassin slumped over. He'd shot himself directly in the head, and was killed instantly. The man who had shot three innocent people had just unintentionally killed himself as he cleaned his gun. But while Clark was no longer a danger to the public, the families of the men he killed, Trevor O'Neill, Martin O'Rourke and Dean Johnson, would never get their day in court. They would never see their loved ones again. 
and they would never know real justice. RTE Radio 1, this is the news at one with Anya Lawler. Good afternoon to you. The headlines this Friday lunchtime. Gardaí investigating the killing of a 62-year-old man in Dublin last night are to interview his partner, who's traumatised after witnessing the attack. Just three days before Christmas 2016, Noel Duckegg Kirwan was shot six times while sitting in his car, parked outside his Clondalkin home. Duckegg, as he was known as someone from the North Inner City, uh, spent his whole life in the North Inner City, knew the Hutches um, very well, was someone who was um, opposed to drugs, but someone who was absolutely in no way involved with the Hutch organised crime group. Kirwan, a grandfather and father, had been looking forward to spending Christmas with his family. He was a dear friend of both Eddie and Jerry Hutch. Kirwan's murder was a particularly low point in the feud, which to date had already claimed the lives of 11 men. Back in February, after Eddie's murder, Duck Egg was pictured alongside a disguised Jerry Hutch. He had driven him to and from the funeral service. The reason for his murder? Well, just that. It's believed Kirwan was targeted purely because of association. It was truly shocking and lacked any semblance of logic or reason. They were trying to destroy Jerry Hutch and leave him isolated and try to perhaps maybe encourage uh, members of the community in, in the North Inner City not to have support for him because he had the support all his life and he still held it in high regard. But when you have them targeting a grandfather for the simple reason that he's photographed beside Jerry Hutz at a funeral, it shows you that, that how evil they are, but how determined they were to strike at the heart of the North Inner City and try to instill as much fear as possible within that community and try to you know, do as much damage to Jerry Hutch as possible. Noel Kirwan's murder was the final act of 2016 closing out a historically grim year for the city of Dublin. Wasn't the last to take place in this feud. But is the final one we will be focusing on in this series. Things slowed down as time progressed. 2017 saw two further murders take place, while 2018 saw four men shot dead. More families bereaved. More blood in the streets. So as our coverage of the feud ends, we'll begin to look at the ramifications, the most violent period in Irish gangland history had on both the Kinahan and the Hutch family. As the body count mounted in Dublin City, a decision was made to try and detach the Kinahan name from their boxing enterprise. Not just that, the company needed a full rebrand. Macklin's Jim Marbella was no more. The organisation would now be known as MTK. A nod to Matthew Macklin's show name, Mac the Knife. Daniel would step down, albeit in name only, and the organisation was sold to Sandra Vaughan. Sandra has a long and complex relationship with the cartel, as Fergus Scheel explains. Sandra Vaughan is hilarious. I mean, really, seriously. I mean, here you have somebody whose first husband, apparently, was kidnapped by the Kenyans and he was um, a guy called Kelly and he was uh, kidnapped in Spain because he was a drug dealer and then 
lo and behold, despite that, she puts it all behind her and she uh, gets involved with uh, Daniel in this thing called Dukashu. Dukashu, Heism, and MTK all worked out of the same office in Dubai, in the Jumeria Bay Tower. They had the same receptions, they had the same directors, they had the same, and yet they claim they're not enmeshed. And what you see with, with the Kinhan organization throughout the world is the same people popping up. You name it, it's Cyprus or Brazil, they have a cohort of supporters. By 2017, in Vaughan's control, but with the Kinahan still pulling the strings, MTK had some of the sport's biggest names in its stable. It wasn't until the following year, however, that the organisation really hit the big time. Alan Dawson is combat sports correspondent for Insider, based out of Las Vegas. And it was only really, I suppose, when Tyson Fury became such a big worldwide figure in sports that that elevated MTK into a considerable player in the sport. Tyson Fury is not just one of boxing's biggest lights. He's one of the biggest sports stars on the planet. But back in 2017, he was going through a rough patch. He had a public image problem after making sexist and racist comments about women and Jewish people. You know, the world has gone mad. There is no morals, there is no loyalty, there is no uh, nothing. Everyone just do what you can, listen to the government, follow everybody like sheep, be brainwashed by all the Zionist Jewish people who own all the banks, all the papers, all the TV stations. He'd also ballooned in weight and stepped back from the ring as he battled alcohol addiction. In March 2017, he posted a selfie on his Twitter feed. He captioned it with a series of thinking emojis. And the photo was him and Daniel, both together around a table in an upmarket Dubai bar. The pair were smiling. They were discussing business. Kinahan was desperate to work with Fury. It would help reform his career. He told the boxer he would have his back through thick and thin. And he could help organise fights that would see him back on the top of the global stage in no time. And that's exactly what he did. People said that this wouldn't sell. Wrong. First of ten rounds, Fury back. In 2018, three years since he'd last stepped inside a ring, Fury began his comeback with a knockout win against Albanian Sefer Sefidi. Oh, that's a solid shot, sinking back onto the ropes under the weight of that uppercut, and there's a slight smile on Fury's face. And I think it's all over. It is. He's been pulled out by his corner. It was a fight that Kinahan helped broker. Later on that year, another deal was brokered to fight WBC heavyweight champion Deontay Wilder in a sellout in LA's Staples Center. It was the first of three massive fights that would take place between the boxers. All with huge money involved. Well, yeah, we actually have information of how much money uh, was being sent to Kinahan from Bob Aaron because he said um, through the fights that, that he helped, you know, broke up with Tyson Fury, they were sending, you know, $2 million specifically to Kinahan. That was just like his management fee. Kinahan's relationship with Tyson Fury allowed him to become one of the most important people within the sport of boxing. It was a strange U-turn for someone who was supposedly stepping back from things in early 2017. Um, it's kind of a quite a dubious area because, you know, when it comes to the executive positions in boxing, there's kind of loopholes because you have to have a license with the British Boxing Board of Control to be a promoter and a manager. Kinahan wasn't going to get one of those, so then he just became a, you know, like a, a, an agent or a, any words that you can just use to kind of get around that. But really, he was doing a bit of everything. In Nicola Tallon's book, The Clash of the Clans, Fury's manager at the time credits Kinahan with resurrecting the career of the Gypsy King. The praise was glowing, 
Kinahan was even described as a godsend to the troubled boxer. It's quite hard to know who isn't, who is, and who isn't a victim when it comes to, you know, people in the MTK roster because they had such a big stable of fighters. You know, it was very top heavy when it came to came the names, but then below that, there were just so many kids that were starting out. They were at their lowest ebb, and Kinahan would come in and he would change their life. So yeah, there's, de- there's certainly numerous instances of quite exploitive behaviour from Daniel Kinahan. But even in 2020, I wrote a story about how Daniel Kinahan basically bullied his way to the top of boxing. And I'd heard from numerous people on both sides of the Atlantic that either Kinahan himself or you know people that were like his underlings or doing his bidding in the sport. On June the 1st, 2017, Jonathan Dowdall walked into the Special Criminal Court. He was there on very, very serious charges. These, however, were not linked to the events that took place in the Regency Hotel. Dowdall had spent the last year in detention for something entirely different. When Gardy had raided his house in the wake of the Regency attack, they'd taken with them a small USB key that was sitting loose among the general clutter in the spare room. When they opened it, they couldn't believe what they saw. There were a series of videos of a man being violently tortured. Strapped to a chair in a dark garage. Not only that, Dowdall and his father were the ones carrying out the torture. The tapes were now being shown in court as part of evidence against the two men. The three-judge panel heard from the victim on how the attack came to be. Dowdall had advertised one of his motorbikes on a website for sale. He was contacted by Alex Hurley, a man who was interested in buying the second-hand bike. After initial contact, for reasons unknown, Dowdall got a bad feeling about the buyer. He did some research online and Hurley's name came up as a scammer, a fraudster, who'd ripped people off in the past. Dowdall was furious that someone would try and pull the wool over his eyes. He got in touch with Hurley again and invited him over to look at the bike, but also have dinner with him and his father. Hurley obliged without suspecting anything out of the ordinary. When he arrived at Dowdall's home in the Navan Road, he was immediately bundled into the garage and strapped to a chair. For some bizarre reason, Dowdall made the decision to record it. Not just that, he got his daughter to do it. The footage was beyond distressing. Beads of sweat rolled down Hurley as he tried to get his bearings and grasp what was happening to him. Jonathan can be heard yelling to him. You're a lying bastard from the sewer. I'm going to chop you up and feed you to the dogs. But stay in me BMW. The video cuts. A second video sees Jonathan Dowdall re-enter the garage, this time wearing a black balaclava. He approaches Hurley, who by this stage has been pushed to the ground still bound to the chair. His head lay on the cement floor. There was no way out. He could only beg to be spared. At that moment, in walked Patrick Dowdall, holding a washcloth and a large bucket of water. 
Jonathan again berates Hurley, calling him a thief, before a cloth is placed over his face and the entire bucket of water poured over his head. Tell the truth or we're going to chop you up piece by piece. Hurley groaned in pain and fear as the torture continued. An increasingly frustrated Jonathan Dowdall slammed his head back onto the ground. You have one more chance to tell the truth. But Hurley still insisted on his innocence. Dowdall reached away for another bucket of water. Hurley recently discussed his recollections of the attack with RTE. Apart from being in shock and an absolute terror, you're, you're, of course, your initial reaction is to say, please not to. Um, mm. uh, you know, but you, 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 just, you just freeze up in that type of a situation. And then at one stage, Jonathan Dowdell waterboarded you. Yes, he did, a number of times. You're a stupid dumb fuck to mess with the head of the IRA. I'm a good friend of Jerry Adams and Mary Lou MacDonald. You can't do anything. The incident wasn't over just yet. The buzz of an electric razor began to be heard as Dowdall furiously took the blades to Hurley's head. Did they actually shave your head with an electric razor? Yes, they did. And what in the name of good God were they, were they attempting to do? was obviously part of their act or part of their agenda of, you know, the torture that they wished to inflict. He took out chunks of hair, all the while asking the question, What are you going to do with me bank details? Dowdall was convinced Hurley was a fraudster. He roared, It's all over Facebook. You're one of the biggest con men going. I'm going to pull your fingers off with pliers and I think I'll start with the little ones and walk me way up to your thumbs. And did he have a pliers? He did, yes. Oh, God. Could you see them? So yes, the... they're in his hand. <laughs> After over three hours of continued torture, Hurley was released. He was told if he spoke to the Gardaí, he'd be killed. The incident was nothing short of inhumane. But Hurley didn't go to the Gardaí. He didn't even need to. Dowdall's recording was enough to incriminate himself and his father entirely. So on June the 1st, 2017, Jonathan and his father Patrick will be sentenced to 12 years and 8 years respectively for the torture of Alex Hurley. But it wasn't going to be Jonathan Dowdall's last time sitting in a special criminal court either. Down the road, the former councillor will get reacquainted with the court halls and their surroundings. This time for the Regency. But Dowdall's actions back in 2015 would have broader implications for his future. And more importantly, for his character. Next time on The Kinahans. There was 10 hours of audio recorded between the two men and Jonathan Dowdall did most of the talking. He went off and won like in a stream of consciousness and he, he couldn't stop talking. And he said the word Gerard 527 times on that audio. The security services in Ireland are of the view that the Hutch criminal organisation had penetrated Garda headquarters in a way that few people could comprehend or believe. The Kinahans was brought to you by the Irish Sun. This series was hosted by me, Damien Lane, and produced by Urban Media. If you've liked the podcast so far, leave a review. It only takes a second. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.